Agora em direto, vamos falar de fundo, onde falamos apaixonadamente de Fórmula 1. Hello, welcome to our second special episode in the English language. Uh, today with us we have Sean Kelly, who a lot of you may know him from Twitter for, as Virtuous Statsman, and he's been providing all the interesting facts and tidbits about Formula One statistics over the last 20 years or so, uh, almost 20 years now. Uh, I also have Vasco and João with us, but uh, I'll start with you. Sean, I, I came to know you when I was a student in the US, and I was following Formula One at Speed Network or Speed TV, And you were part of the team with Will Buxton, Bob Varsha, Stephen Matchett, and David Hobbs covering the, the Formula One season at the time in, in 2011. And you would always come up as the, the guy that would bring all the interesting uh, bits of information to the race, because especially when there were dead moments uh, or dull moments during the race, and then you would give some piece of information that would make it all interesting again because someone was about to break a record or someone was about to do something that had never been done or that would be the moment where we would hit the, I don't know which number of overtaking in the season or how does this come to you I mean how did you come to this job and to this passion with statistics in Formula One well uh, first thanks for having me on the show And may I compliment your uh, foreign language skills, as I cannot speak a word of Portuguese. I apologize. Oh, um, thank you. But um, how did I come into it? It's, it's a question I get asked a lot, because obviously a lot of people want to get into Formula One themselves. And um, I think anyone in Formula One will tell you we get asked three questions more than any other, which is, how did you get your job? Can I have your job? And do you need an assistant? Those are the three <laughs> questions we normally get asked. But um, in my case, um, Most people don't believe how I got into Formula One because it was such a weird way that it happened. I actually cold called Speed Channel without knowing anyone there and, and sold them on the idea of hiring me. There wasn't a job advertised. Um, they weren't looking for somebody to do statistics. But I thought from having watched Formula One since I was six years old and been told countless times that, you know, you should try and get a job in that. You're always way ahead of them on the TV there. Uh, you, seem, you seem to yell things at the screen that they tell us 20 minutes later. You should see if you can do that professionally. So I thought I would try. And um, I, I called them up. I, I didn't know who to call. I called the wrong offices twice and they redirected me. And eventually I got the producer for Formula One. And um, I said, it's going to be amazing if you hire me or whatever it was I said. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what I said exactly. But I put the phone down. It was, it was a voicemail. I left a voicemail message. So I thought, okay, um, I'll never hear back. And two days later, he called me back. And I thought, oh, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting that. Um, and he said, okay, well, if you're serious about it, submit an example of work you provide, typically. So I thought, okay, I've got no idea what he's expecting of me, and I've never done this before, um, but I'll have a go. And um, there was like four months of back and forth. This is the winter of 2002 going into 2003. Mm -hmm. And eventually he offered me a job and they, they offered me a job for $200 a weekend that first season. And I think right. they were trying to, I think they were offering me a job just to get me to stop calling 
Like leave if leave give, us alone. Yeah. If yeah, if we give you two hundred bucks a weekend, will you go away? Um, <laughs> and that's how it started. And um, from from this uh, very small beginning, um, it's turned into a, a career whereby you know I I provide that service now for something like sixteen or seventeen domestic broadcasters. Um, for also to Formula One themselves, uh, a couple of the teams uh, in the Formula One race programs that you would normally buy at the racetrack if we weren't in a mm -hmm. pandemic, um, and a few other bits and pieces as well, Formula Two and Formula Three, and this season the W Series. So yeah, it's turned into it's turned into a lifelong career. But uh, how did you discover that this was an interest for you? That it was something that you wanted to to do? Well, I. I, I naturally got interested in um, Formula One because my older brother watched it on television and I didn't have a choice. We only had one TV, so, <laughs> so I, had to, I had to watch it. But I actually found it more interesting than he did and uh, took it all in, uh, you know, by so you became almost. You became obsessed with the facts and uh, with the achievements of the drivers and the teams and you started looking into that and building up your database or...? No, it was... It, it wasn't... I didn't notice it as being an, an obsession because I was so young. I mean, I, I, the first race I watched uh, was when I was six. It was actually uh, 34 years ago this week. Um, what, Monday this week was 34 years since my first race that I watched on TV. And um, as a kid, I thought everybody else was taking it in at the same rate. I thought everybody obviously knows that Ayrton Senna is driving the Camel Lotus 99T with the active suspension rather than just the Camel car which is what everybody else in my school thought it was called. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, oh, the camel car, the, the yellow one. Yeah. Um, no, that's the Camel Lotus 1990 with the active suspension. So I thought everybody else was not paying enough attention. It wasn't a case of me trying to learn every last thing about it. It was just naturally like, I, I find this stuff quite interesting. So I just, I, I read it and remembered it. I wasn't forced, you know, I wasn't forcing it. I wasn't trying to yeah. become that. And, over the course of several years, I started to get ahead of Formula One itself, you know, because something would happen on the racetrack. And I would say, you know, I don't think that's happened since well, 1974. And then <laughs> later in the broadcast, they would say, oh, that's the first time that's happened since 1974. <laughs> uh, at which point, whoever I was watching it with at home would say, you should get a job doing that. Why don't you do that? You're miles ahead of them. So I, and I always thought, oh, yeah, oh, no, no one makes a career doing that. That's stupid. And then eventually I, I actually tried and it turns out they were right. So. You see, what I find fascinating is that I can do that with the races I've seen in my lifetime, right? But mm. anything before I started watching Formula yeah. One, and not even the first two or three years that I watched Formula One. So I started watching Formula One in 81, 82, uh, but I only started remembering after 85. Uh, and things that happened in that time, since 85 till now, I tend to remember because I watched it. But before that, I have no clue. So you, you can bullshit me like there's no tomorrow about what <laughs> happened before 85 because, you know, unless I read about it here or there in an article or a book, I won't know. Well, so maybe, find... maybe that's what I am doing to everybody and they just haven't looked. <laughs> Good for you. If that's what you're doing, it's amazing because you're pulling it off like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, uh, do it with confidence, folks. That's <laughs> top tip. Make, make it sound convincing. Yeah, that, that helps a lot. Um, you started in 2003, so you avoided the most boring season in the history of Formula One, uh, which I think it was also the shortest season in the history of Formula One because it ended in Hungary 
2002 in July 2002 no that season uh, it was, it was uh, France July 1st it was even earlier I thought it yeah. was Hungary that they sealed the championship no Schumacher uh, sealed it in 01 in Hungary um, and then in All 02 right. it was in France and we thought it was early in Hungary in 01 but wow that's super early and then the next year even earlier so yeah it was pretty boring times <laughs> but 2003 was an interesting year a lot of things happening and this the first signs of a challenge for to Ferrari and and I know that uh, you're very proud of a stat that uh, you called first before everybody else so and I, I'm not gonna lie I watched the podcast that you recorded with some uh, some of our fan colleagues uh, where you told this story so that's why I know it I'm I'm not uh, pulling <laughs> it out of thin air so why don't you tell us that proud moment of the beginning of your career where you called uh, a very relevant historical fact before anyone else in the world. Well, um, I firstly I admire your your research for re listening to all the other podcasts that I've been on. I'm not sure I would do that, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, in you are right that in 2002 it was a very dull season. Schumacher uh, won uh, 11 races that year, which was a record at the time, and had wrapped up the championship by July. So it was real dull stuff. But in 2003, which happened to be my first year, suddenly a load of things happened that we hadn't seen in Formula One in a generation since the 1970s. And I was very lucky, and I actually genuinely think that this has contributed to my longevity in Formula One as a career. I came in at just the right time when all these very interesting things were happening, but we hadn't seen in Formula One in so long. And I just happened to be the guy who said, hey guys, um, this is new. This hasn't happened in so long, and here's when it happened. The stat I think you're referring to. Well, actually, just before I get to that one, in my second race, Malaysia 03, uh, Raikkonen won, um, Barrichello was second, and Alonso was third. And it was Raikkonen's first win, Alonso's first podium. It was the youngest ever average age of a podium we'd ever had. And that hadn't happened. That, that record has stood since um, Belgium 1974. And we had that on the air on Speed Channel. Uh, well, you know, before we went off the air and, you know, we called it as a record and then the next day it was reported as such. But so that was the first big thing, you know, having initially said, we'll give you $200 to go away. I think then they were like, no, wait, we'll come back. We, we come back. Hang on. We, we, come, we'll give you on. another $200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, else have you, what else have you got? What else have you got? Um, but the one you're thinking about is Monza, I think, 2003, yep. um, when Schumacher won the race in front of the Tifosi. It was a big... A big moment in the championship because it was in a close battle with the championship with uh, Montoya and with Kimi Raikkonen. Schumacher won the race, but in doing so, he set the fastest average speed in Grand Prix history. It was the fastest race in history. Um, I think uh, I, I know it. I'm afraid I only know it in in miles nice. per hour. It was just yeah, it was just under 164 miles per hour. Uh, I, can, I can was, I can investigate. Yes, 260 258 kilometers an hour. I think average. Um, and I said it, passed it to our guys to say on the air, well, that's the fastest race in history, our statistician says. Uh, that has broken the record that has stood since Monza 1971. Um, and that was that. We, you know, we had it on the air before Schumacher had even stepped out of his car in Park for Men. And so we celebrated that on the air, went off the air, and no one else reported it at all. No one. Not also sport, not anybody. And over the course of the day, I thought, 
I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I've got this right. But why is no one else? If it is right, why has no one else said it? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the person who's wrong. I think they, they weren't paying anyone 200 bucks, you know. Well, yes, it's the best $200 they ever spent. But um, I was I had to write an email to everybody saying, look, guys, I've, I've checked the, the calculation 10 times, and it, it always comes to the same answer. This is the fastest race. But just letting you know, no one else has, has reported this. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of worried that I'm wrong here. And then the next day, everybody reported it. And I was like, oh. Thank like, God, <laughs> because I thought I was going to look like, okay, this is probably the end of my F1 career now. Now that I've made everyone look stupid on the air, uh, calling a record that wasn't a record. The next day, everybody else went with it. And um, yeah, then my career started to take off from there because it was like, whoa, okay, well, instead of 24 hours from now we're talking about it, now we can talk about it the second it happened. We should probably get this guy in to help with our broadcast. So in 2004, I started offering the service well, first off, Speed Channel gave me a proper contract in 2004. Mm -hmm. ah, okay. $200 a <laughs> um, But I do always point out to people in the first season, given all the other work I was given to do in the first year, I made $8,000 US. That was my that was my income for the first year. And I was there. Somehow I made that work, you know, watering down so you, you, and all that stuff. You really like McDonald's, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. Um, but as far as I was concerned, it was like, no, no, stick with this. I think there's a career to be made here. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, yeah, the next year they gave me a proper contract and then I started selling my services in syndication to the international broadcasters. Um, and, and that's, that's when it really started to pick up as a business, as opposed to just me helping out on one show. Mm -hmm. And uh, you still do that to date, right? So you basically still have around 20 customers or something like that. Uh... Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I, the last count, I think it was 16. Uh, domestic broadcasters plus um, F1 uh, plus uh, some of the teams uh, and then there's F2 and F3 and the W Series is new this year because W Series is supporting mm -hmm. um, eight, eight of the F1 rounds so um, it's split off in a few different directions and there's a couple of side things as well like the, uh, the, the football team here in San Diego the San Diego Loyal which is the professional team here uh, I do some work for them as well um, just because they're the local team and, I, and they were looking for a statistician. And I said, well, uh, since I'm here, <laughs> perhaps have a look at my resume. I, I, I do a thing called the World Championship in Formula One. Um, and they said, ah, well, that's perfect. That's just the kind of guy we're looking for. Could you come and do it? I said, well, yeah, when, when Formula One allows, because you know, uh, second, level, second division football is not going to pay what Formula One does. But they, they appreciate that. And they said, yeah, whenever we can get you, that'd be great. So, yeah. yeah. So here you are now, it's 2021, you're delivering uh, your stats uh, to 20-something broadcasters worldwide. You're doing F1 experiences as well, I think. Not with, not because, because of the pandemic, there's no actual F1 experience, but as soon as there's public again, you will probably resume that again. And and I, I want to say something here and then I'll let my colleagues uh, pick up and start asking you questions as well and talking with you but you did something last year that I found amazing because when the pandemic hit and Formula 1 got cancelled you went and you took out a job at Walmart and you didn't hide it you wore it with pride and I think at that moment in time that was very powerful because here is someone that works in Formula 1 works with all kinds of international customers and cool customers because everybody gets to know who they are because of the 
it's a TV channels that we all watch the races in. And in a moment of crisis, he went to Walmart and you came out and he said, look, it's okay. We need to survive this. We need to get over this. And we're all in the same boat. And I think that was an amazing message that you put out. And you concluded that journey in Walmart in the same amazing way, which was celebrating the fact that Walmart gave you a job, that you had an opportunity to get a job during the time of crisis, and that you worked with a lot of people that were in the same situation as you were. And I just wanted to congratulate you for doing that and for setting that kind of example that nobody should feel ashamed for the situation they found themselves in, that, that in a time of need, you do what you need to do to get by. And there's no shame or no, uh, it's not a downgrade from your previous job. It's a continuation of your journey in life. So I wanted to bring this into the podcast and for people to know, and they can check your Twitter feed line, timeline because it's there. You, you didn't delete it. <laughs> you, you keep it there. And I, I think for you, it's a badge of, of honor in my opinion. Yeah. Well, thank you for the kind remarks. Um, it is true that I, I would say that in the first couple of days after Australia was cancelled last year, the first couple of days I thought, where are we going? What's going to happen here? Like, I don't, hopefully I can sit here and, and, and wait this out. But it quickly became clear, okay, we're not going to be racing here, possibly at all in 2020. So it's uh, everything you had planned, you know, you're going to be yep. on, on the balcony in Monte Carlo, escorting the VIPs and all of that stuff, you know, on the yacht, chin chin champagne. None of that's happening. We're playing, we're in a different world now. Now we're in mm -hmm. a world where we have to survive. Um, it's not about prosperity. It's about just, let's make sure the lights are on. Let's make sure we have food. Let's make sure we have, we have our health. Let's not get COVID ourselves. Um, so on that basis, um, I, I applied at Walmart because I thought, well, they're the only people who are hiring. Yeah. And, and I genuinely thought, if I don't hire, if I don't apply for this now, next week, there's going to be 5 million other people out of work. Yeah. Because the, the airlines are going to stop. All entertainment is going to stop. Like I, could, I could see it coming. I, I could see, okay, this is all going to stop. And all these people are going to be out of work. And then they're going to have tens of thousands of people applying. This is the only job that's available, so go for it. Um, and at the time I thought, this doesn't pay the bills, but it doesn't least really slow down how much money I'm losing. You know? So on that basis, I thought, okay, in the normal world, you would think working at Walmart is probably like, well, what happened? <laughs> I, thought, I thought things were going so well. But in that, in that, in that situation, I felt like this is as good as working in Formula One. This is the best job out there and I've got it. So I always looked at it with that mentality, like, okay, it's, yeah, it's not what we thought we were doing, but compared to other people, there are other people out there, millions of people unemployed. You can't complain about the situation that you're in. Yes, okay, fine, you're not hanging out on yachts in Monte Carlo, but that's not the point right now. The point is just keep going and you know, keep doing something, and, and eventually, you'll, hopefully, it will come back. Um, and I tried to have some fun with it because, as you mentioned, I, I posted my adventures on social media because i didn't want anyone else to feel bad that they'd have to take a take a step back from what they normally do career-wise mm -hmm. um and i also didn't want to seem so self-absorbed that i couldn't like i thought if i hide it then that just looks pathetic you know it looks like oh, oh i see you just want us to think that you're in private jets and all that stuff but you don't want us to you don't want us to see you in a normal job you know yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I wanted to have some fun with it. Which is, so we did that. I, you know, I 
when I'd be out there doing my shifts, I'd see like uh, the marks that we put for the shopping trolleys. I say, oh look, it looks like the marks on the starting grid of a form. Okay, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a Grand Prix around Walmart. You know, we do all that. <laughs> so I tried to find things like when I'd be stacking all the wall the the Red Bull on the shelves. Like, oh, here we go. Look, it's got Red Bull. It's, see, it's not it's Formula One. It's got Red Bull on there. Yeah, see, it's a, there's a little bit of Formula One there. So I'd it's always be exactly like any any sponsor I could find where I'd be like, oh look, that's Formula One. Let's take a picture of that. Well, I think it was really cool, uh, and uh, and I think, uh, as I said, that it was a powerful message for other people that found themselves in a situation where they had to take a step back. They were forced to do so, and that there's no point in feeling ashamed of anything. I think the situation no. fell on our laps; it wasn't caused by us. Uh, I think I would have been more ashamed if I just sat still and waited for the problems of the world to fix themselves. I think it was it was it was definitely one of those moments where it's like, okay, you need to. Re rethink where you're going this year because we're not doing what you thought you were going to do. But then neither is anyone else. So maybe this, maybe you could lead by example by posting this on social media and make people think, all right, it's not so bad. If, if even he's having to do it, you know, then I, I don't need to feel so bad about me doing it. And, and bear in mind, I mentioned there before, you know, I made $200 a race in that first year. I, I you know, I, I started doing minimum wage jobs when I was a teenager. I wasn't born into Formula One racing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's in a way, you've got to take positives from these things. And I, the positives I took were, hey, don't take for granted any of this Formula One stuff. It could end tomorrow. It ended, it ended suddenly in 2020. So it's all about, you know, life is about taking the negatives because there are a lot of negatives in life. You've got to take the mm -hmm. negatives and find ways to turn them, turn them into positives. So I think was able to do that as, as best as we could in 2020. And my, my big ambition now, and I still keep in touch with my the friends I work with at Walmart who have no interest in Formula One. They had no idea I even had another job. I didn't even tell them um, until the, like the last day I was there. Um, I kept my Walmart vest, you know, the one you have to wear with the name tag. Mm -hmm. And I said, my ambition is to get back on the yacht in Abu Dhabi or in Monaco and get my picture taken wearing my Walmart, <laughs> Walmart. first on, on a yacht with the champagne, all of that stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, guys, we did it. Like, every, like life's good and you know, you know what the best part of that will be? What's that? You're going to get approached by Zach Brown saying, how the hell did you get Walmart into Formula One? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did think it was funny that Walmart started sponsoring Red Bull um, because I had more than, like, I had at least two or three people send me a message saying, are you anything to do with this? <laughs> because they had no interest in Formula One until you went to work for them. And now they're in Formula One. Well, there you go. Nothing Maybe it's me. your third career. It's hinting at you. Right. I, mean, I, I love to think I was that important, but fortunately <laughs> I am not. Uh, that was complete coincidence. Vasco, do you have some questions for Sean? Yeah, I have uh, uh, a few questions, but... Um... I'd like to start a little bit of um, with a little something a little bit nerdy uh, to understand. So you, you, initially, you started to work by yourself. So you you did all this to work, all this uh, data compilation, and um, and things have evolved. Have evolved. You've been doing this for twenty years or so. So uh, um, my question to you is: What kind of tools uh, do you currently use? Uh, to work all this data, because uh, in in an era of machine learning and of AI, that uh, machines can do anything, uh, you kind of sound like the guy that you have a very good adaptive memory. 
uh, which is <laughs> very useful in in your in your role. But um, I, when I look at your work, I see a lot of, of hard work, possibly, oh. but also a seagull there. A seagull. <laughs> there we are. It's oh, it's not. That's the proof that it's not a, a made-up scenario. It's real. It's a um, real one. We, we direct the seagull, everybody. There he is. <laughs> you found oh, out my Portuguese, friends yeah. landed as well. Look at this. We've got a whole party. They've all come down to listen to the podcast. They must be Portuguese-speaking seagulls. Yeah, yeah exactly. they, they migrated from from Portugal to to San Diego. Yeah. But my question to you is: There's a lot of hard work, but there's also a lot of passion in doing this. Because uh, I'm also a little bit of a nerd myself when it regards to Formula One, but it comes to a, a point that you you simply cannot uh, get all this information. What kind of tools do you use to to compile all this information and get and, and have the information at hand very quickly? How do you do well, that? Well, it, it's surprisingly simple, actually. Um, I think a lot of people expect me to have a very very complex. Um, data science background and, and so on, but um, yeah. actually, a you don't. Huge amount of detail, a huge amount of detail can be pulled from the Forex website, the Formula One Motorsport or Motorsports database. There's a, a huge trove of information that you can get from Forex.com, which, uh, for people who don't know, is a subscription site. But nevertheless, a very, very if you're interested in F1 history or motorsport history, a fantastic site to use, um, and it's what people in Formula One use anyway. So um, it's not, uh, if, I, if I use something else and it has slightly different numbers in certain elements, people would say to me, hang on a minute, Forex says this. So it's just easier to use Forex. Um, yeah. But uh, there's some things that Forex can't do. And for that, I actually use Excel. I just have an, I just have an Excel database of my own. Um, you know that I was expecting that answer from you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's not complicated. And the reason is this, you have to remember, uh, you know, I am not making statistics for data scientists and I'm not making statistics for engineers. I'm making statistics for normal race fans. So you can't overcomplicate things. You can't say, hey, that's interesting. Uh, you know, that, uh, I don't know, Sebastian Vettel's, you know, standard deviation in his Q2 performance is 40% lower when the track temperature is below 33 degrees Celsius. <laughs> I have no idea what you just said. If you say to me, Sebastian Vettel hasn't made Q3 in the last 14 races, that I get. That I understand. Yeah. And you have it's to understand that that, yeah. that, yeah, that that is the simplicity that you have to boil it down to. Because fans are tuning in to see the race. They're not tuning in to hear a lecture about data science. So you have to not overshadow. You're trying to complement the broadcast. You, you are not the broadcast. You're there to complement the thing that people have tuned in to see. So you must always make sure what you put on the air is simple enough to instantly get. You don't have to sit there and go, hang on a minute, what did you just say? Um, I have to confess that I, I didn't know your work as well uh, until uh, until recently. But uh, once I started to dig in and, and get to know a little bit more about you, I understood that you have a continuous role during the broadcast, as you mentioned before, on the, in the Monza race. The question that I have for you is now is, uh, what was the race that uh, you felt that you contributed more, that you uh, that was more exciting for you to, to, to contribute, that you felt that you made more of a difference? You mentioned the one at Monza, but I'm sure that, that there are a few more. Um, that's a good question, actually. I mean, I often think about Monza 03. 
Um, but I was only working for one network then. These days, I, I, the, the information service that appears in the booth, the commentary box for each broadcast, it means that I indirectly have quite a lot of influence in where all the coverage goes, because it, whatever I put up there, all the commentators say at once, and everyone reports it. So you kind of steer the the broadcast. Yeah, I often I often liken my role to being the rudder of a ship. Like you can't see me, and I'm not making any sharp movements, but I do just gently, gently steer us in this direction. You know, um, I think that the Monza 08 actually comes into mind as being an influential one when Vettel won Monza. Yeah. yeah, because that was he was the youngest winner of all time at that point, and um, that was the first win for an Italian constructor other than Ferrari since Fangio won for Maserati at the Nürburgring in '57, which no one had considered. Um, so it was a big day for Italy. The, you know, it's a big a big day for non-Ferrari wins in Italy. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, there are other similar sorts of things. Like uh, usually, the, the races that have mad things happen in them are usually the ones where I feel most useful, because then you're really flying by instinct. Like when Gasly went at Monza last year. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. When Button won, Button won at uh, Canada in 2011, when he was uh, last, he was last in the race at one point. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Sakir, the Sakir Grand Prix last year. We had so much stuff I was ready to line up on George Russell, and then we didn't need it. We needed all Sergio Perez stuff at the last minute. So suddenly we had to change it to being that. Um, and then Ocon was on the podium as well, so we had, we had that. Um, so, yeah, whenever there's um, a race where something unusual happens, that's where I feel like I'm most useful. Although perhaps the broadcasters would say the opposite. Perhaps they would say it's the boring races where you're the most useful to us because yeah. you give, give us something yeah. to talk about. Um, yeah. But um, I think it's more exciting to me when something unusual happens because you think now I'm going to tell you something. This probably hasn't happened in a very long time, yeah. and I'm going to be the person who's going to tell everybody to say this on the air because um, they usually look to me like in Bahrain. In Bahrain, we had um, Hamilton beating the all-time record for laps led, mm -hmm. and I literally had two or three broadcasters and even F1 themselves coming back to me in the ten minutes before. To say, is this right? What which lap are we talking here? Okay, well, if he keeps leading, it'll be lap 41. And then and then he went into the pits two laps before he would have broken the record. So we were like, oh, okay, we're that close, guys. We're two laps <laughs> away. So we've got to wait for him to get back into the lead. Um, and then finally he did, and then you get more messages saying, it's okay, and and what was it, end of lap, whatever it was? Okay, it's this lap, guys. The end of this lap graphic on screen, that's the record. And that's yeah, you've got that going, and then you've got to tell the broadcasters it's you know, you've got to make sure that they see on screen it's going to be this so that they can build that up. And then as he crosses the line, graphic comes on screen, and the, the broadcaster is not surprised. You know, they, the commentator has already mentioned it to expect it, and he crosses the line, and that's the record, folks. Bing. And, you know, it all looks very smooth and like, uh, like they all like everybody knew, you know, like oh, we we all knew instinctively that it was going to be exactly that lap, but it actually it was. You know, me coordinating it, and making sure everybody knew to say it at the same time. Yeah, but you, you actually set a trend with this because uh, nowadays it's very common that even before the race starts, they're already telling us what uh, records are going to be broken or are close to be beaten. Or 
uh, and then during the broadcast they keep reminding us that these records are up for grabs and and that's something that is quite recent into the sport i mean something that you started seeing more and more over the last 10 years i would say but before then it was almost oblivion yeah you would rarely think, get this kind of tidbit i think that was my fault i do apologize for that change in the uh, in the structure of formula one broadcasting it's probably me um constantly nagging the broadcasters about these things before a race and say we've got this 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 and this to look for so now now they tend to broaden that out into being okay well let's tell the audience in advance you know these are things to look for in the race that are not not just the result but it's all these other things that may be of uh interest to us and i i, I always enjoy the the nuance the, the small things like for instance uh, going into the start of last season sebastian Vettel had never finished 10th in a grand prix and then, he, and then he finished 10th in the Grand Prix three or four times last year, having <laughs> never done it before at all, once. Um, well, so, your, your, your favourite stat is uh, Jim Clark, is it? 20, uh, yeah, you've got um, 25 Grand win. Prix victories, 25 Grand Prix wins and one second place ever <laughs> in his World Championship career. So with Jim Clark in his 72 Grand Prix, you need the win or the car breakdown. A very, very, almost never would he finish second or third. What happened when he finished second? You got distracted? It was, it was, it was the German Grand Prix of, uh, I think it was 1962 or 63. Uh, I think John Surtees. It must have been 63 if John Surtees won those. Um, uh, yeah, but that was the only time he finished second. Um, yeah, it, it did happen on occasion. Um, but yeah, I, I like stuff like that. I, I, you know, it's... Um, Occasionally, you get that with drivers. Like I did one with Norris this weekend, which is uh, let me get the exact let me get the exact wording of this. So when you hear it in a broadcast, you'll be like, "Ah, oh, well, I know who told them that." One. Um, <laughs> we know the source. Let me get that on screen for me here, so I can I read it out for you exactly as I wrote it. Um, Norris now has the oddity of having finished fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, ninth, and tenth exactly three times each. He's finished in okay. all those positions three times. Okay. So. Yeah, if they say that, that was me. Okay. But, or, yeah, there's there's all sorts of stuff like that. I, I, I do. I mentioned how relatively straightforward my the, the, the database I keep is, but it's not. It's very very it takes a very long time to go through it and, and note these little things. Like, oh, that's an interesting. Thing. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about it. Um, that takes a long time. It's it's not only uh, looking at the data; it's uh, making correlations between the data. So it's it's uh, it's probably uh, takes you a lot of time to do that. Or yeah, you're gonna find. It, 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 is it find straightforward? Yeah. You want to find a good point of reference. Like, okay, so this uh, this driver has done this thing twenty six times in their career. Okay, um, is that good? I mean, you need to have a reference point to that. You know. Um, like uh, there was another one uh, as a comparison here. I think it's Botus, and again, I, I refer to my notes just to make sure I'm actually right. Yeah, Botus has got 16 fastest laps in his career, but well, he's only just behind Ayat and Senna now in fastest laps, which I know sounds incredible, but is true. Um, you think Senna's numbers are untouchable, but in the fastest lap column, he wasn't particularly good. That was always the area where he didn't excel. Um, so. Based on fastest laps, Botas is almost as good as Senna. So there we go. Well, we, well, we, we, know, we know a fan of our podcast that will be very happy with that piece of information. All right. I think he's the only true Bottas fan in the world. 
because he really takes it to the next level in terms of supporting Valtteri Bottas. Uh, well, so we'll, we'll share that uh, information with him and it will make him very happy. Uh, Joel, don't, tell you... him, don't, tell him, don't tell him, by the way, that no Finnish driver has ever won at Imola. That he won't want to know that. Carry on. <laughs> we, we, will, we will omit that fact. Okay. <laughs> Joel? Um, yeah, um, so Sean, uh, I won't hold you too too long because João and Vasco stole someone of my of my no, questions. Sorry about that. Uh, no, no problem. We are here to to hear Sean and le learn from from him. Um, my question is more directed for Sean itself in in this way. I don't know if you know the last time this happened, but imagine this scenario: you are watching a Formula One race. But you are not working. You have always the sh the chip turned on, or you can enjoy the emotion of a, of a race in in Formula One. Um, well, the last time I watched a race that I wasn't working on would have been Japan two thousand two, um, and it, I I do get caught up in things when we're really close battle. It's some wheel to wheel racing going on. Somebody tries a really spectacular overtake, and they and, they, and it, it works. I, I do get emotional by it. I like I, I'm I'm moved by it. I, you'll hear me go, you know, cheer or punch to punch the air. Yes, all right, that's a good one. Yeah, now carry on writing my notes, and um, so I did, I still still get like that. I, I would say that I don't get like that about a specific driver. Like when I didn't work in Formula One, I had drivers that I might support. Um, these days, it's more about the race generally, and I think, okay, well, what would make the race really interesting? I want that to happen, whatever that is. Uh, whether that's Lewis Hamilton starting from the back of the grid, or it's raining, or you know, whatever it is, or like McLaren are much quicker than we thought they would be, or anything like that. I think, oh, now, okay, I like that. Um, so I do, I do still get uh, emotionally invested in it uh, while the race is on. Um, but at the same time, I'm also thinking, by the way, you need to carry on logging lap time so we know what the tire degradation is on this set, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I find yeah, a way to cross-reference or keep, keep the two of them going. Like, I'd still be a fan, but also, like, okay, well, we're going to have to tell the broadcaster something to say on this, so do that too. Yeah, with all these years, you, you have your own system to separate the, the waters and be emotional and in the in the other in the other side uh, always be yeah i think i think if I, in your in your mind they both complement each other you know because i think if i wasn't emotionally invested in it i wouldn't be as good at my job because i would just be like no that's good enough but to me it's yeah. like no no it's not good enough this is formula one you've got to be the best you know you've got to have everything ready to go like as soon as something interesting happens boom you've got to have it on the air you've got to tell people this is why this is interesting folks this is why you should be watching um, Some, somehow I, I get the feeling that you have this Barney mode uh, in you that you're watching the race all series and then all of a sudden something very weird happens and you go, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually quite accurate. You mentioned it. I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. Yeah, it is a bit like that. Something very odd happens. I think, whoa, wait a minute. Now we're going to be going all the way back to 1983, blah, blah, blah. I'll give you a great example. Nobody has won a Formula One race from ninth on the grid since 1984. Did you know that? No. No. Nicky Lauda won, I think it was 
Dijon. I think it was yep. Dijon 84. From ninth on the grid. No and it never from, happened since. No one's won from ninth on the grid since that day. Isn't that amazing? That's yeah. a weird fact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's no special reason for ninth place. No, there's no to reason. Be the like, one. Ga Gasly, I think, won from 10th at Monza last year. So yeah, Alonso won from 11th in 2012. Uh, yeah, Hamilton's won from 14th. Yeah, um, exactly. But no one from 9th ever since 84. <laughs> um, now I've said that, whoever wins this weekend will be ninth on the grid. Now we've had this conversation. <laughs> well, then we'll get you back. We'll right, get you back yeah. just to comment on the next weird spot. I for will be Mystic Sean predicting <laughs> what's going I, I, on. I was going to ask you, uh, because this year it's... it's uh, it's. Uh, we hope that it's going to be a more uh, normal year, a more normal season than than the previous one. But uh, this year, uh, a few. What? What? Apart from Lewis Hamilton winning the, the eighth uh, um, title, what is the, in your opinion, the weirdest fact or record that uh, it's going to break? Uh, that a driver could break could 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 achieve this year. Oh. I wish you'd asked me last year because I, I felt like okay. there was more. I felt, I felt like there was more to break last okay, I, year. I will put you. I will put you. I will ask you. Uh, comp compliment my question. Which driver uh, would could possibly, uh, apart from Lewis Hamilton again, could um, have more uh, records this year? Records. When I say records, it's achieve something. Uh, fact. Uh, and m my bet is it's Sonoda because I think it is he's very young. He's very fast, and he's probably going to do something special this year. Yeah, I, I was I was actually going to say Sonoda, um, because, okay. of course, he's already become the 65th driver to score points in his Grand Prix debut. Um, okay. not, by the way, not the best result ever for a Japanese driver in his first Grand Prix, which are two different really? statistics. Yes, because, of course, we had a different points format uh, back in the oh, day. Okay, okay. We only had points till 10th place since 2010. Uh, Satoru Nakajima yeah. was seventh on his debut in my first race. I referenced it, Brazil 1987, the first race I watched as a fan. Nakajima was seventh on his debut. And also, and here's a really obscure one for you. Shinji Nakano was seventh on his debut, Australian Grand Prix 1997. How many cars finished that Grand Prix? Oh, uh, must have been about nine, ten. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> that explains but, a part of it. Yeah, but um, yeah. Sonoda has a great chance to be, firstly, the only the fourth Japanese driver to be on the podium in Grand Prix. We've only had three drivers on the podium. All of them finished on the podium once. So another get another thing could be Sonoda has a shot at being the first Japanese driver to finish on the podium twice in Formula One. That's never happened, um, and I'm sure it pleases Honda, and it probably make them wonder why they're pulling out of Formula One just as they're getting good. Yeah. At it. Because yeah, yeah. finally they've got to the point where people will say, actually, Honda are far better than we thought they'd ever be. And now they're, yeah. you know, they're winning pole positions and winning races. And, and just yeah. now they're pulling out. Just It seems a shame. Like, why, why they, they'll, become, uh, they'll become title sponsors of Red Bull and Alpha Tauri. They, so, they, you know, they might. It might, be, it might be a good idea for them to do that. Um, they did I, that in a way when they pulled out and they, they, they built a winning car. But so... Let's. I, I agree with you. Let's hope that they can uh, rethink that decision. That would be nice. Yeah. I have. Um, I, I have a question about um, about drivers and about something that we talk a lot in here in in podcast, and it will be fun here and and answer 
um, yards. Um, so, what if you know what is the average of races uh, run and for, uh, by a teammate of Max Verstappen until um, the expelled of the team? <laughs> Because this wow. year Max Verstappen have, have a good have a good teammate. Um, yes, Sergio Perez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually. Verstappen is obviously in a very good place right now. Um, he's got the team built around him the same way that Vettel had Red Bull built around him. But that, Verstappen is not unbeatable. In his first year in Formula One, 2015, he was out-qualified by Carlos Sainz across yeah. the year. And a lot yeah. of people don't remember that. But Sainz I remember that. Sainz was more than a match for Verstappen in that first season. Well, Carl if Sainz it wasn't... If it wasn't for mechanical failures, they would probably finish ahead of yeah. Max yeah. in the championship. Carlos Sainz, I think, among the most underrated drivers in Formula One. Thank um, God. Yeah, I Living think I, it's great to have him. I hope I hope Ferrari can give him a car that will show everybody how good he really is. Um, I, I yeah. made a prediction that uh, in a podcast I was invited to that uh, if Ferrari wins a Grand Prix this year or, or one or more, the first win will be Sainz, not Leclerc. And people gasped when I said it. Uh, but I have that conviction that uh, it's probably bring success faster to Ferrari than Charles. I, I think, based upon the way Vettel drove in Bahrain, in the Aston Martin, the evidence at the moment suggests the problem in that second Ferrari last year was the driver, not the car. Because Vettel was, no, Vettel was terrible in Bahrain. Um, yeah. And there's no reason to think that Carlos Sainz would not be able to keep up with Leclerc once he settles in with that team. Yeah. Um, but returning to uh, Strauss' uh, question about Verstappen, um, Ricardo, could, R Ricardo could match Verstappen on occasion. He, couldn't, he wasn't as good as him over the course of the full season, but Ricardo definitely had the pace to go with Verstappen. Of course, he won two races in 2018, and then again had bad reliability, which kind of killed his season a little bit, and then he went to, to Renault. Um, Red Bull have been a one-car team since then, And I don't know why, like, what is it about, what are Red Bull doing that means that the second driver is just not comfortable? I'm convinced it's not the driver, because we've seen how Pierre Gasly went back to Toro Rosso, now AlphaTauri. Very, very impressive in AlphaTauri right now. Gasly looks like the driver we thought he could be. Yeah. But when he went up to Red Bull, he looked like an idiot. And I, I think Alec Albon had the same thing, which is... I, I know I'm way faster than this, guys. I, I, I don't understand why it's not working. It would be very interesting to see how Sergio Perez deals with it because with Gasly and with Albon, they may have felt psychologically that they couldn't say to the team, guys, this is terrible. You have to change the way you do this. You have to change the way you do that. Because they may have felt a little bit like they were getting, they were being given this opportunity by Red Bull. Which, you know, like they're the people who made our careers. Whereas Perez will come in And Perez has already had a Grand Prix career, 10 years of Formula One. Mm -hmm. um, so he knows, okay, I've already been at McLaren. I've spent years at Force India Racing Point. Uh, sorry, exactly. you know, I've, I've been in plenty of teams, and I wasn't always a Red Bull guy. I'm coming in from outside. I see where we're going. This, like, why are you doing it like this, guys? This isn't, you know, if you do this, we're going to be slower than the other car, whatever it is. I hope that that's what happens. And a key statistic from Bahrain, which people don't realize, is that... Um, <laughs> Perez was knocked out in Q2 in Bahrain when Red Bull were trying to qualify on the, the medium tire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Verstappen got into Q3. Well, 
in that Q2 session, Perez was three tenths of a second slower than Verstappen. Now, if Perez had gone into Q3 and he had again been three tenths behind Verstappen, it would have been a Red Bull front row lockout. Yeah. He would have been quicker than the Mercedes. Now, I'm not, of course, Verstappen might have had a little more in Q3, a little quicker. Mm-hmm. But let's say he, let's say that that was his pace and that Perez could have gone at the same improvement. It would have been a Red Bull 1-2 on the grid. So well, there's, a, there's a chance there that Perez has more in reserve. We'll know a lot more this weekend, of course. Well, we could see it in the race, though, because uh, you had that uh, polling uh, formation lap where the car just shuts down, which 90% of the other drivers will just stand up and leave. Uh, and he was there, you know, trying to get the car working. And he managed to get it working. And then he starts from the pits and he finishes fifth. Yeah. I mean, if he had started in 11th, he probably would have been in the podium. Quite possibly. Although yeah. I would I would qualify it by saying that he actually had the same results in his first race for Red Bull as Alex Albon did. Which yeah. is he started from the back and finished fifth. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, it's the same. Um, what we need to see is what can Perez do after having a really good qualifying. You know, when he's not when he's starting at the front, how how close can he get to Max? And more importantly, can he beat the Mercedes? Because I think if we have a championship battle this year, we'll need two Red Bulls to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. We can't have Verstappen yeah. out there strategically trying to battle two Mercedes for track position. And especially this weekend at Imola. Imola last year had six on track passes, easily the lowest of any race in the 2020 season. In the last, I think in the last seven, I think, Imola races, I think it's seven Imola races. We've, had, we've never had more than nine on-track passes. Now that compares with Bahrain, which usually rates in the high 40s. May, way more overtakes in Bahrain. So Imola, very difficult to pass. If you mess up qualifying, it's like messing up qualifying in Monaco. So yeah. Saturday's well, going to be very important. They changed the DRS zone for this year, so let's see how that impacts the overtaking because they will have a bit more track to use the DRS and that can give the boost they need to pass each other's. But uh, yeah, normally Imola is a procession race. Yeah. It's, I'm, uh, glad it's they, I'm glad they changed that. Usually, Imola is decided on strategy, right? And that's what's uh, fascinating about the, this particular track. And then, of course, we all remember 2005, was it, when Alonso and Schumacher did that amazing display of 18 qualifying laps without uh, making any mistake, either of them, and <laughs> not changing yeah. the result? That was, a, that was a race that was made because Schumacher couldn't get past. It, it yeah. wasn't possible for him to overtake. So, you know, we might get an exciting race on that basis, but I'm gl- I am glad they've extended the DRS because this is definitely one of those tracks where we really need DRS. And I don't like DRS yeah. for what it brings to racing, but this is one of those racetracks where, okay, we really need it because you'll never, you a- never pass anybody otherwise. Do you have any visibility on, on the percentage of, of overtakes that are done with the DRS and the, one, and the ones are not? I don't. Um, that would be... Some of the teams tend to keep that data. Um, it might it might exist in the depths of the FOM Formula One digital archive. Never actually requested it. Uh, I probably should. Oh, there you go. Um, we want okay. royalties. Yeah. Okay. Do you need an pro- assistant? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it may exist somewhere because um, the on-track passes tend to only count at the line. So, for instance, if you pass someone halfway around the lap and then they get past you before the end of the lap and then you cross the line in the same position that you were at the start of the lap, there's no pass. It, yeah. it doesn't register as an overtake. Um, whereas the teams who use GPS monitoring, 
they would recognize, okay, this was a pass, this was a pass. I actually had an argument with Mercedes about it one year because they said there was some ridiculous number of overtaking moves in one of the Grand Prix. And I said, I'm sorry, that's completely nonsense. There's no way that that's the right number. What they'd done was use the GPS data you know, in, from the first lap when all the cars are all next to each other. So, you know. Yeah, every time down, the sensor passed in front, they counted yeah, the like over there. They're doing all this, you know, on the yeah, first yeah. lap. So you get like 35 extra passes out of it in the in like 10 seconds. And then the rest of the race, there might be seven. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I had to sort of put my hand up and say, I'm sorry, no, you can't, that's not right. You can't use that. That's uh, false advertising. Um, we're getting close to the hour and we don't want to take a lot of your time away. So we're already thankful for the time you devoted to us. I have a final question. Then maybe Vasco and John can ask a final question each as well. Have you ever yeah. been approached by a team to provide them with your kind of work? Because you, by keeping track of all this data, you obviously see patterns and you can identify trends. And has any team ever approached you to provide them with some of that uh, data? I have, and I have, in that order. Um, yeah, I have been approached by more than one team, um, and I do provide information to some of them. I don't know if I'm at liberty to say who. No, 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 but, that's right. Because yeah, okay. I haven't checked if I'm supposed to be able to tell people. <laughs> um, but um, I, I always try to, I, I tell them that even if I'm providing data to you, don't think that that means that I won't put negative stuff about your team in what we put on the air mm -hmm. because let's say a team is having a bad run of results well then we need to talk about how it's a bad run of results i can't you know i can't say to them hey uh, I'll, I'll deliberately make it look as though it's a lot better than it is um i'm very i'm very particular about that because i know as i mentioned before i've, I've got a lot of broadcasters relying on me and i know it's very important to correctly portray what's going on you know say for instance if i if like if there was a driver who i really didn't like or there isn't a driver who i don't dislike or anything like that but let's say if there was um yeah, a less professional person might think right i'm going to write the worst thing possible about this driver every week um and i know that if if that thing goes on the air in enough places it could if that could genuinely influence their career in one instance uh, i had a driver a few years ago his manager emailed me very, very upset at a statistic we put on the air because he knew it came from me. He, he's like, there's only one person who could have come up with that. It was you, Sean. And the funny thing was, was that it was actually supposed to be a positive statistic because I had mentioned this driver had beaten his teammate using a one-stop strategy instead of a two-stop strategy. And the point I was trying to make was that this driver had used his tires very, very intelligently. Yeah. He thought I was saying he only beat him because he one-stopped. Like, there's no way he could have beaten him if it was a straight fight. Like you, he's, he's a slower driver, and he, the only reason the other guy didn't beat him is because he didn't stop once. You know, and I was actually saying, no, no, no. I was saying your driver was very intelligent. That's what I was trying to get at. And he actually apologized to me and said, yeah, sorry. I, it's the politics, the politics we have to deal with in racing. Sometimes we see things that are not there, and we see negative negative things. We think people are attacking us because. There's so much politics with dealing with drivers in Formula One, but sometimes you just you misread it. But it, it reminded me that you also have a great responsibility to not screw people over, basically. Like you must say, 
for instance, Valtteri Bottas had, you know, has had a long run where he just, he just gets thrashed by Hamilton. That's what the championship says every year. But I also try to look at things and say, okay, well, here's how he is at this racetrack. He's very good at this racetrack. And, you know, although he keeps, you know, he, Hamilton's beat him in Q3 by two thousandths of a second four times this year. So you're always trying to look and balance it and say, look, there is something good. Yes, there's bad, but there's something good as well. So you always try and do that. So, you know, it, it, it's fair to everybody. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the question was. I forgot what the question was, but I've ended up there. <laughs> if you okay. if you ever uh, were approached by a team and if you provide oh, yes. their services, yes, that was team. it. Yeah. So I'm I'm the teams obviously want positive stats, so I give them positive stats. But in the broadcast, I always try and make sure I have the editorial independence to be able to say what I think needs to be said. Because um, I think it's important. We mustn't have, we mustn't have a, a, a media where. Like if, if there's a if there's a Formula One team, let's say a Formula One team paid me a huge stack of money and then said, So you won't say anything negative about us, will you? That's a very slippery slope, you know, because then it's yeah. like state sponsored media. It's like, well, the teams are paying the media to say nice things all the time, which is definitely don't want that. Joel? Final question. Uh, final question. Um getting out a little bit of F1. Um, you already told told us that you have now you are helping now San Diego local local teams. You do for other sports, even if like a, a hobby, like things that you like, like I don't know basketball or surf, or you you know all these kind of statics in in your in your head, or or in in these in these sports, yes, you 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 turn it off and you just enjoy the. The sport. I when I watch other sports, um, I I'll watch the show, and I won't be thinking about stats. But when they show stats on screen, <laughs> I will think to myself, "Okay, I know what I know what I know what it's like, guys. I know what it's like. Trust me, I, I get it. You know, I know that the struggle is real. Um, the challenge. So I'm not always I'm not I'm not sitting there and judging what they're doing. I, I always think I I know that job. I know. There's limitations with what you can do, and there's, there's things you want to do that you can't do because you just don't have the technology or enough people in the in the production to do it. Um, so yeah, I try to avoid going on about stats in other sports so much, but inevitably you learn something because my brain is my brain likes sports statistics. So when yeah. I when the when the San Diego team um, hired me. It was interesting because I was then dealing with a team sport. We got 11 players for one team on the pitch at the same time instead of two, you know, per team in Formula One. So, you know, it was like, oh, this is fun. A whole new avenue of things to look at. I've never had, you know, you never get to do, deal with these things in Formula One. You're like, yeah. um, so that made it quite fun. And um, at the second level of professional football in this country, they don't have anybody to do that. So I think I'm the only person, San Diego team, the only team that has someone doing that and uh the rest of the league said oh, would you be interested in doing it for us and i said i, I can i I'm, i'm doing it as a side job anyway my formula one job is my main thing um i, I didn't want to get away from it but it is fun 
I'm yes. surprised, by the way. I'm surprised, by the way. Not not one of you has tested me. I thought you. I think you probably try fire some quick well, fire. No, 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 no. Uh, our goal is is to, to have a conversation with you. We we know that you're good. <laughs> and, and we know That's that you already put practice. in your twenty or thirty hours preparing this weekend's race, so we don't want to to pick your brain that way. <laughs> you you, you don't go to, currently. You don't go to the races. Not at the moment, no. Um, had had it been a normal world, I would have been at about half of them. Um, okay. Last year, we, we were supposed to have 22 races last year, and uh, I would have been at at least 10 of them. So, yeah, it was kind of back and forth. Um, is it is it uh, harder or, or simpler to, to do your job from home? I would say that it's simpler to do the broadcast stuff. From home just because you know where you're gonna sit that the internet connection works simple things like that which when you get to a racetrack is not a hundred percent because you <clears> sometimes <throat> think okay the, the Wi-Fi doesn't work or you know I've got no desk space it, it's I know it sounds stupid but it, it, it genuinely happens yeah no I know um, <laughs> and but the other thing is uh, you mentioned uh, um, I do F1 experiences hosting guests um, I also do uh, paddock club as well um, so, obviously, that that stuff I have to be at the racetrack for. Um, so there's a there's a half and half there. Fortunately, in the non-pandemic world, um, they only need me for the races that have the most guest interaction, the guests, you know, the highest guest list. So that means the good ones, you know, Monaco, um, you know, Abu Dhabi, uh, yeah, all like all the really good races. So you're like, okay, I don't have to go to all of them. I only get to go to the really good ones. Okay. Fine. All right, if you insist. Um, but unfortunately, right now, it's not possible. And I, we've just seen, um, just before we recorded this, that, um, that Canada has been cancelled for a second straight year, yeah, unfortunately. unfortunately. Um, yeah. Which is a real shame, because um, have, have any of you been to Montreal? I was planning to go last year. Uh, I didn't buy the tickets, though, so I'm not waiting for my reimbursement. <laughs> uh, and I was planning to go as soon as... I actually work for a Canadian company and it's one of the things we want to do as companies to get together and go to the Grand Prix in Montreal. So we'll have to wait for next year now. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a real shame. Montreal is one of my absolute favorites. I love, love going to Montreal. It's always so fun every year. And it's so, I'm, I'm really sad that we're not going this year. Uh, and you know, for us Portuguese, it's kind of funny because there's a big Portuguese community there. So you find all kinds of Portuguese restaurants and shops in the middle of downtown. Uh, so it's a fun experience. Uh, I recommend it to my Portuguese friends and colleagues that haven't been there to go because, uh, you know, it's a bit like Toronto. You also have the little Portugal area and you go to New Jersey and in Newark, you have the Portuguese community there. Well, in Montreal, they're all over the place downtown. So it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, fan it's fantastic. They, they, I mean, Montreal City turns into a party, Formula One party for the weekend. It's just they really embrace the race so much. Um, and it's such an easy racetrack to get to because it's it's on the island you next to downtown. Bridge. You know, and you cross the bridge, you get the the, the metro, Montreal metro. Yeah, it's easy. It's, uh, it's it makes it fun. It's you, not you as easy as Singapore, though, because Singapore is literally you cross the street. <laughs> well, yes, depending on where you're staying. Yes. Uh, um, it, it, you're mentioning that Canada has a good relationship with Formula One, uh, and you live in in the United States. What's the deal with the Americans with Formula One? They don't get it. It's it's too too not too entertaining for them. 
Well, I, I, I've always angrily dismissed the idea that Americans don't get Formula One. We're talking about a nation that landed a man on the moon. Now, if they can do that, they can probably get the idea of 22 cars or 20 cars going around a racetrack for 90 minutes. Yeah, so they can get, they get a handle on it. So I, I've long thought that Bernie Ecclestone didn't get America. I think that was the problem. Not Americans didn't get Formula One. Because it used to be that the U.S. Grand Prix every year was the big money race, $50,000 for the winner of the U.S. Grand Prix. That was the race you really wanted to win. The big bucks were in that race. Um, and the U.S. was the only country until last year when Italy did it. The U.S. The was the only country to have three races in a year yeah. in 1992. Um, unfortunately, there were Long Beach was obviously great. The others was Detroit and Las Vegas, which were not. And I think Bernie made a, a series of poor business decisions about the U.S. at the start of the 1980s. Firstly, moving away from Watkins Glen, which ostensibly was for infrastructure and safety, which I understand, but meant we lost the great road race at the U.S. And then we moved away from Long Beach, and that was a big mistake, because then Formula One lost Southern California, and it lost the glamour race. You know, the idea that you could have all these actors and actresses coming down from Hollywood to Long Beach to do F1 was fantastic. It made, made sense for everybody. And Bernie wanted too much money, and then Long Beach decided to go and do IndyCar. And then since then, that's when Formula One started to die in this country. And um, I've always thought, and I know this sounds crazy, but this is only the only thing that makes sense on this, that Bernie Ecclestone deliberately tried to make it look like that, that, that he deliberately killed it to make it look like he was right. Because why else would a, would a promoter with that much skill and that much understanding make such a poor effort to understand the U.S. market, unless he had to make it look like he was right to take away the race away from Long Beach. It wouldn't make any other sense. So that's what I think happened. And I think now we've got American ownership. They want to get back into the U.S. market. That's why we've got Drive to Survive. We've got this bumping figures, you know. And Miami, Miami's on the way in, apparently. Miami, I hear, is on the way in. I'm not convinced that that's a great... I'm not convinced that that's the best move for Formula 1 in the United States, but well, it is an, another race in the Miami. United States. It's Miami. It's Miami, but I, they might make the same mistake that other people have in thinking that mm. all we've got to do is, is, is set up shop there, and it's a winner. Um, football had this. Major League Soccer had this when they tried to set up teams in Miami before, and it all collapsed because the locals actually weren't all that interested in a local product. They actually had their own teams. Like People in Miami all support Barcelona and Real Madrid. You know, yeah, or, yeah. Or they, they, didn't, they weren't interested in the local team. Um, and they might have the same problem with the motorsport market in Miami. Um, it, it remains to be seen. And I don't know if, if it's the right venue. I mean, it'd be one thing if they were hanging out in Miami Beach. Quite another thing if you're hanging out in Miami Gardens, yeah. so I can tell you. It's yeah, quite yeah, a different yeah. thing. That's um, what I was going to say. Because if it was in Miami Beach, that would be an amazing postcard for everybody involved, right? Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. that, that's, that's what you'll see on the, the publicity. But the reality might be a little bit different. It might it's not the parking like lot of the stadium, right? That's what yeah. is being proposed. Uh, Which doesn't the, sound great. <laughs> because the city objected it to being uh, in the main roads uh, yeah. of the city, apparently. I, it, might, it might work. It, I, 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 hope, I hope I'm completely 100% wrong. And it's a massive success. But you, you don't think they're trying to tap on the Latino population? We may may be consuming Formula One already from traditions from back home because in Latin America, Formula One is a popular sport. We'll we'll see. It will certainly be a destination race. It will certainly be a race that people will want to go to because it's Miami. Mm -hmm. 
I just don't know if the locals will embrace it. I mean, we've seen a significant local opposition. Um, and the fact that the, the actual venue might not be that glamorous might put off the whole point of having the race. Um, you know, when you go to Abu Dhabi, for instance, have you ever been to Abu Dhabi? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the best of everything. You just, you can't believe, like, wow, this is where the 21st century is. Like, this is where all the money is. It's all here. They've got the yeah. best of everything. It's incredible. Um, I don't know if people really want to hang around a, the parking lot of Hard Rock Stadium. It, it just doesn't <laughs> sound great. In contrast, contrast that with, um, with Austin, which is obviously purpose-built, but quite a bit out of town from Austin. But at least when you get there, it's a purpose-built facility. It's meant just for that. And then the other one, which is the one I've been saying for years we should do, is Indianapolis. Why don't we go back to Indianapolis? Indianapolis already exists, already has a racetrack, already has a great safety license, and it's owned by Roger Penske, who, one of the greatest businessmen in in history, let alone in motorsports, in in anything. Um, And a man who gets and understands racing. And, And as you mentioned, the history and the prestige of racing at the Speedway. Let's do that. Let's go and work out a way to do that because that's on a plate. Like, literally, it's this easy, guys. There's a, another race in the US. There's no reason why the US shouldn't have three races in Europe. If we no, have eight, a, eight, eight, seven or eight in Europe, we should be able to have three or four in North America. And it's a shame that Indianapolis is tied to the tire issue in 2006. It was 2006, right? Uh, 2005. Uh, 2005. I mean, I, I think it's a shame that that's the legacy of the the venue in terms of Formula One right now because it's a temple of speed, right? It's it's like yeah. Monza in Formula One. It's in it's yeah. Indianapolis in, in the US. Uh, you would want to go back and at least set the record straight in terms of what the race in Indianapolis could be like instead of what we saw that year, which is the last right. memory we have of the place. Well, anyway, I remember sure. I remember being in that. Uh, being at that race and was Easy not, stats, being, no? not be, I wasn't, I wasn't, well, first Portuguese driver on the podium. I was going to mention just, that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was a good one. Um, you know that we, I, we, at least I spent the whole race praying that the Ferraris would crash out. <laughs> and they nearly did. They nearly crashed into the yeah. Yeah, I think we, were, we were praying for it as well. Like, well, at least we could get a Tiago Montero, Narayan Carter, K and 1-2 out of this. And then that's a really interesting <laughs> result. But no, no, we had to have a Ferrari 1-2 again. Ugh. Um, yeah, I'm not, I wasn't convinced we were going to get out of there alive. The booing was so loud. People were throwing stuff onto the racetrack. It was, it was bad. We were like, um, I think we want to get changed into our normal clothes so people don't know that we're working in Formula One. And pretend we came to see the race. And pretend we came to see the race, yeah. <laughs> like hide our passes under our shirt, you know, like put it under here. Yeah. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. That was a bad day. Yeah. Well, let's hope that uh, the the US gets more Grand Prix and uh, that uh, we get better experiences out of them and that one day maybe F1 goes, goes back to Indianapolis. I'm still looking forward to the day where they can switch cars. The, the best drivers of Indy can t- try the Formula 1s and the best drivers of Formula 1 try uh, the, the Indy cars. We already saw it with Alonso, which can be a spectacular result. I think it could work both ways with a bit of practice. Uh, well, you know what? You know, Rod, Roger, of course, owns IndyCar. So maybe Roger would say, hey, you can have Formula One at the Speedway, but 
you're going to do something with IndyCar as well. Mm. Yeah. Now that would be well, exciting. That would, that be, would fun. be nice. That, that would be, be fun. Nice. And I actually think there's not much difference between them in terms of the drivers. Uh, because one of the issues with IndyCar that I always found is that a lot of the star drivers tend to be older than the star drivers in F1. Uh, and that may look like, in terms of skill and talent, there, there's a big gap. And while in reality, there isn't, in my opinion. So I would be very curious to see how they would behave in, by switching cars. Uh, and you know what happened with Alonso when he first went to Indy was already a good appetizer for for something like that. So let's hope one day we get a treat like that and we get to see these guys having fun in cars that they're not usually driving for a living. Yeah, very good. Sean, thank you very much for coming to our podcast and for spending this time with us. It was very enlightening and uh, entertaining as well. And uh, we wish you a good weekend uh, with the Grand Prix at the, the Pirelli Gran Premio de Made in Italy, <laughs> the Emilia Romagna 2021. San Marino Grand Prix of Emilia yeah. Romagna, Italy, of San Marino, uh, yeah, Vatican, the, Vatican City. Exactly. <laughs> you can put everything Italian into the name of the Grand Prix. We decided to call it the Imola Grand Prix or San Marino Grand Prix. Yeah, just Imola. Old just, school. Imola Grand Prix. It's good enough for me. <laughs> I, I, we won't get a lot of passing this weekend. It'll only be a very, very difficult race to pass on. We'll have to wait until we get to Portugal to have a real race with real overtaking. Yeah. Yes. That we're looking forward to the unfortunately no public this time, so oh. it will be a closed door event. Uh, that's too bad because of course last year last year was the closest we were we all there. Yeah, it was the last, it was closest we got to having a normal race last year was Portugal. We were there all well, there. The race itself was a lot the Grand Prix itself was a lot of fun. The, it was rest, very, the first five laps of it was really fun. That, <laughs> those were the best five laps of the last what yeah. 10 years yeah. at yeah. least. Yeah, I mean, like we're all sitting there going. Hey, did I just see that? Did I just see Carlos Sainz take the lead in a McLaren? <laughs> Mercedes. What's yeah. going on? It's all got all well, not, what, not one Mercedes, two Mercedes. He yeah, passed them yeah. both. I mean, we'll go, hang on a minute. What's uh, what's this all about? <laughs> this doesn't happen. That that was fun. Those five laps. But you know, the the rest of the race was also fun because there was a lot of overtaking. It wasn't so fun or exciting in terms of the packing order of the teams. Because it yeah. was more or less the same as usual, but in the back, so from the fourth, fifth place backwards, there, there were a lot of overtaking among them. Even if they, in the end the result was more or less the same as usual, so that was entertaining. And we're looking forward to see it on TV this time because we saw it live the first time, and so it will be a different experience. But yeah, let's uh, let's hope that the Imola gives us an entertaining race, even if it's on strategy, and that the Portugal gives us an exciting race with lots of overtaking. And we hope that you get challenged with a lot of uh, weird statistics that you have to dig, dig, <laughs> dig deep to find and uh, come up and say, and we'll know that if Norris does a fourth, <laughs> fifth, seventh, yeah. eighth, ninth, uh, whatever, it's going to be the, ten. the fourth <laughs> right. time that he does it. Yep. Um, we're looking forward for the guy from ninth place to win the race. Uh, so that yes. the 84 the record drops. Yep. And uh, also the Bottas record, the mean, fastest lap. Oh, oh yeah, 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 Bottas he's equals uh, Senna. Yeah, he's, yeah, I think he's three short at the moment. So that'd be later okay. in the season. Uh, okay. But he also he's trying to be the first Finnish driver to win a race at Imola. That's, uh, okay. No Finnish driver ever won a Grand Prix at Imola. So. And if I hear on the broadcast uh, a weird stat like this has never happened, uh, the last time that happened it was 1957. I'll send you a Twitter message uh, thanking you for the information. <laughs> 
Guilty as charged. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Sean. It was a pleasure. You're Thank always you, welcome Sean. at our podcast anytime you want to, to come by and share more stories about your work. Uh, thank you, Vasco and João, for being here with us and uh, uh, participating in this discussion. Uh, we will be back soon. Uh, normally, the next episode of the podcast will be next Wednesday, live at 7 p.m. as usual. And in between, there will be other shows of the podcast that will be released uh, for our patrons at patreon.com. And also, there will be a novelty this weekend. We're going to do something for the first time in the podcast starting Sunday after the race. It will be a surprise for our listeners and followers. Uh, but that will come after the race. So until then, uh, stay well, enjoy the Formula One, and we'll be back soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.